Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. Today we're going to be talking about infertility treatment and breast, ovarian, or endometrial cancers. Are infertile women at a greater risk? Does infertility treatment increase a woman's risk? And is it possible and is it safe to get pregnant after treatment? Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. For breast cancer, I think the data are fairly reassuring. In fact, there was an article that just came out within the last month, a very large study from the Netherlands, that really seemed to indicate no increased risk with um, fertility drug use. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Nonprofit, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. Yes, we have a we primarily keep in touch with our audience through our weekly e-newsletter. We let you know about the latest developments in infertility and adoption as well as the new resources we add to our site each week. This is also a great time for you to submit questions for the upcoming week's show and uh, for us to ask to our experts on the air. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter at creatingafamily.org on the top right side of any page over there. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. For many patients, cost can be a barrier to pursuing fertility treatment. That's why Faring offers a savings card for their endometrin vaginal inserts. This instant savings card offers up to $100 savings each month on your endometrin prescription for eligible patients. Ask your doctor for more details. This show, as well as all the many resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors, who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Fairfax Cryobank. They have been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and are dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Only 1 in 200 applicants make it through their screening process to become a donor. We also have the Law Offices of James Fletcher Thompson, a South Carolina firm committed to assisted reproductive law as well as adoption. They include a gestational surrogacy matching program as well as legal services for independent surrogacy, egg donation, and embryo donation matters. And we have Snowflake's Embryo Adoption Program. And did you know that Snowflake's Embryo Adoptions now has a magazine? It is called Pathway, the number two family, and it covers topics relevant to both fertility and adoption. You can get more information at Pathway2, that is the number two, family.org. Today we're going to be talking about infertility treatment and breast, ovarian, and endometrial cancers. 
Our guest today to talk about this topic is Dr. Louise Brinton. She is the Senior Scientific Advisor for the Division of Cancer Epidemiology and Genetics at the National Cancer Institute. During her 40-year career with NCI, she has focused her research on a wide variety of exposures related to cancer risk among women, including reproductive factors and fertility drugs. We also have Dr. Umberto, but he goes by Bert, Scotia. He is a professor and director of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago. Welcome to Creating a Family, Dr. Britton and Dr. Scotia. Pleasure to be here, Don. Yes, thank Good. you for having me. All right, we're going to divide our discussion uh, today into kind of three general areas. Uh, somewhat based on the questions we got and, and just what we know women are asking us about uh, the, the risks of fertility treatment and cancer. Um, so the first question we have is, I mean, the first area we're going to cover is, are women who are infertile more likely to get breast cancer or ovarian cancer or endometrial cancers uh, or any really type of reproductive tract cancers? Our second area, general area we're going to cover, is the cancer risk with fertility treatment. And the last general area we're going to cover is the uh, getting pregnant after treatment uh, for any of these cancers. So let's start with kind of that first general area. Dr. Brinton, are women who are infertile more likely to get, let's, and let's kind of divide this up into the types of cancers, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer, um, is, is there something that has to do with infertility that would make a woman, affect a woman's risks for cancer development? Yes. Um, it's quite well established that women who never bear a child are at an increased risk of all three of those cancers. And the question is whether infertility, which of course can result in not having a child, can lead to further increases in risk. And we do have some evidence that infertile women are at a slightly higher risk than women who have never had a child. So, okay, so we know that, as you point out, that are, that women who have never had a child are at increased risk for those types of cancers that we've mentioned, breast, ovarian, endometrial, and other reproductive. But I thought that had something to do with the fact of the kind of the constant, the, the pregnancy and if, and if she chooses to breastfeed during part of the breastfeeding time, a cessation of the, of the hormones um, that might increase her risk is, is that still the thought as to why pregnancy has a, a somewhat protective uh, uh, factor? It's a little bit different for each of the three cancers. For breast cancer, uh, we know that the younger that you have a child, the lower your risk of breast cancer. And also, if you do breastfeed for an extended period of time, you can lower your risk of breast cancer. And so those are factors that lead to women having had a, women who have a child having a lower risk than women who never have a child. In terms of ovarian and endometrial cancer, we don't really see the effects with age at first birth and with duration of breastfeeding. It's really mainly a difference between having a child and not having a child that affects your risk of those cancers. So what... What about having a child would protect your ovaries uh, in some way? Uh, it's actually probably the cessation of ovulation that occurs during um, the time that you're pregnant because we know that the number of times that you ovulate, and of course you ovulate each month when you're fertile, um, 
that appears to be the factor that reduces your risk of those cancers. And the nine ovulation cycles uh, alone would have an, um, that seems like such a small number. Uh, of uh, Well, it can, accumu- have, well, it can accumulate, of course, across each pregnancy, and then also breastfeeding will also suppress ovulation. Right. Yeah, okay. Uh, Dr. Scotia, how much of an increased risk does endometriosis add to a woman's chances of getting any of the cancers we've just been talking about? Since we know, of course, that endometriosis can, in fact, impact a woman's fertility, thus a number of infertile women have uh, endometriosis. Right. It's definitely associated with infertility. Uh, With regards to cancer, the main concern relates to ovarian cancer. The good news is that the risk is small, um, probably uh, less than 1% in terms of the overall increased risk, but some women who have um, especially endometriosis in the ovary, we call it ovarian endometriomas, when these occur at an older age may increase the risk over time of developing ovarian cancer in some women. The problem is we cannot determine who's going to develop cancer and who's not, so it's a little bit of a trial and error trying to figure out how to advise patients, so sometimes we can monitor them with ultrasound. Other times, if the cysts get too big, you know, over five centimeters or two inches, we just go ahead and recommend removing them because at that point, then you get into other issues like um, torsion of the ovary where the ovary actually twists and can cause severe pain and actually you can almost lose the ovary at that point. So the recommendation is to just remove the cyst at that point to preserve the ovary. Uh, But the risk is relatively small. I just want to make that clear. And is it the endometriosis lesions themselves are turning cancerous, or is it that somehow the presence of these lesions um, makes it slightly more likely for a woman to develop cancer, or do we know? It's it's within the endometriosis tissue that this... uh, type of cancer will develop. It's an unusual cancer, but those are the types of uh, patients that are going to develop this particular type of cancer related to endometriosis as opposed to the more common cancer, which is unrelated to endometriosis. But the risk is very small. Okay, got it. All right. And Dr. Britton, the Polycystic ovarian syndrome, we got a couple of people who asked questions about that and, and increased risk, obviously, for ovarian, um, but I will throw in endometrial cancers as well. I mean, people think of it because they're getting cyst, you know, more cysts on their ovaries, thus the concern that some of the, somehow that could become cancerous. Do we know much about the increased risk with polycystic ovarian syndrome and ovarian or endometrial or uh, reproductive tract type of cancers? Yes, it mainly appears to be a risk factor for endometrial cancers, and we believe that this is the case because polycystic ovary syndrome is associated with a number of hormonal alterations, including excess androgen levels. And we see that women with polycystic ovary syndrome are at about a two- to three-fold increased risk of developing endometrial or uterine cancers. For breast cancer, there probably is also an increased risk, although it's less than what we see for endometrial cancer. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Well, and that makes sense, I guess, because of the uh, it, of the hormone connection. So breast cancer that's is right. a, 
a slight, but not the two to three. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, that's fascinating. All right. Now, what I'd like to do now is move into talking about the risks of cancer with fertility treatment. Uh, and certainly something that you had said, Dr. Printon, about the number of times a woman ovulates has something to do with her risk of cancer, hence why pregnancy offers a certain amount of protection because a woman is not ovulating for those nine months and if she breastfeeds for a certain number of months you know, when she's breastfeeding. So it stands to reason that a concern would be that uh, drugs that would make a woman ovulate more or ovulate if she's not ovulating or ovulate more eggs might impact uh, her cancer risks. Um, so let's talk about the just kind of in general, and then, then I'd like to break it down into the different type of of drugs, the oral medications, um, including clomiphene uh, citrate and, and letrozole, and then as well as the gonadotropins, which are the injectables. And I'm going to start with you, Dr. Brent. So what in general are the risks of breast, endometrial, uterine, ovarian, with infertility treatment? Well, that's a very complex question, and there have been <laughs> right, a lot of studies. Yes, yeah, there's been a lot of studies that have been done, but they're very complex studies because we not only need to account for the treatment that the women have received, but also their underlying conditions that have led to the infertility. And then we also have problems in identifying an appropriate comparison group. A lot of the studies have tried to compare infertile women to the general population, but of course that's not an appropriate comparison because there's more reproduction that goes on in the general population. And so the studies have been complex, and we're also dealing with oftentimes rare cancers, such as ovarian cancer, which requires very large studies in order to have enough statistical power to define effects. And then the final uh, complication is that we usually are looking for long-term effects, so we need to study cohorts of women for several decades before we can get sufficient information. So those are just some of the complexities that go into the types of studies that need to be done and have been done. And I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of confusion in the literature as to whether there are effects or not. So I'll try to break it down by the cancer sites. Um, For breast cancer, I think the data are fairly reassuring. In fact, there was an article that just came out within the last month, a very large study from the Netherlands, that really seemed to indicate no increased risk with um, fertility drug use. Uh, These were mainly IVF-exposed individuals. For endometrial cancer, um, also we don't have much evidence of a link. Now, the one that really is much more complex is ovarian cancer, and this has been the one that's been of a lot of concern because there were some very early studies that seemed to indicate some very large increases in risk of ovarian cancer associated with mainly clomiphene use. The subsequent studies, fortunately, however, have been much more reassuring in not showing any large increases and really not showing any increases at all. The one exception is that we are seeing an increased risk for what's called borderline ovarian cancers or cancers of low malignant potential. And the question there is whether it's really an effect of the drug or whether it's because those women are getting more medical surveillance and the tumors are just being picked up at an earlier stage. 
And so I think the data are fairly reassuring and not showing uh, large increases and probably not showing any increases for most of those cancer sites, which is, of course, quite reassuring news. Excellent. Very reassuring. Why I'm trying to understand from a uh, just from a, a big picture view, why would uh, the oral medications? And you didn't speak about letrozole, but is, I mean, is, is that have there been studies on that as well? Not really. Most of the studies have focused on clomiphene uh, okay. because that's the most commonly prescribed medication. Right. Okay. Um, so why would an oral drug? Have we th- we tend to? In fact, it's often called you know uh, um, IVF light or, or uh, uh, gonadotropin light, or it's considered it's the beginning treatment. Uh, it's often given by um, um, uh, uh, gynecologists, and um, and unfortunately, women often stay on it way longer than what is probably medically uh, what medicine would uh, would suggest. But we think of it as being kind of a lightweight in the scheme of fertility treatment. It's the first step on that escalator. So why would why would clomiphene be have greater concern than the injectables? Uh, I didn't mean to infer that there would be less concern. Oh, okay. Well, you said that the the studies had indicated that, or maybe I misunderstood you. I thought you said that the studies had indicated that the primary concern with ovarian cancer came from uh, women who had taken clomiphene rather than gonadotropins, or maybe it was just exclusive that they didn't study the gonadotropins? Well, the problem with um, studying the gonadotropins exclusively, particularly those used with IVF, is that IVF is a much newer procedure, and we're really just getting at the cusp of being able to study long-term effects in cohorts of women who have received IVF. Oh, okay. So it's I guess because with most chemical no. carcinogens, it takes at least ten to fifteen years before we start seeing an effect. And so, in order to have the statistical power, we're really just getting <clears throat> to the point where we really can assemble enough numbers to really have uh, valid results to look at long-term effects. So, would it be fair to say that those long-term studies are ongoing? And we don't actually know the result. And, and are there on, are there big studies uh, uh, ongoing that have uh, attempted to uh, deal with some of the complexities that you uh, outlined at the very beginning? Right. There have been a number of studies. Unfortunately, a lot of the studies haven't been as large as we really need them to be. Um, but there are many studies, including some that we're doing. In fact, we're doing several studies right now in Israel, and the reason for choosing Israel is that that's the IVF capital of the world. There's more IVF given per capita in that, that country than in ev- any other country in the world, and so it allows us to have a unique ability to look at effects in a smallish population. Yeah, and who do they compare them to? And this, you know, who's who's their comparison group when you're comparing? Are you comparing them to uh, to women who are non-infertile? Well, that is a problem that's been uh, that uh, has applied to a number of investigations. What we're doing in Israel, because of the fact that so many women receive multiple cycles, sometimes up to ten cycles, we're actually comparing the women who are heavily exposed to women who have minimal exposures. 
And that's really the only proper way to account for the factors that lead women to seek IVF in the first place. It would be inappropriate to compare them to a group of women who are not fertile and who've never received treatment. Right. That's what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. Dr. Scotia, this begs the question is, does the number... Um, does the increased number of cycles of either Clomid or, uh, or, or injectable gonadotropins increase the risk? Is it kind of dose-associated? In other words, if you're exposed more, you've had more cycles, because there are women who've had, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten cycles. Um, and and uh, that's of, gonanotro- of, IV, of actual IVF, i.e. injectables, gonadotropin. But I, I can't tell you the number of women that we have and our support group who will, who have been on Clomid for way, you know, like a year or longer, some some considerably longer. So are those women at a potentially greater risk? Well, it has been a concern in the original. The initial studies actually uh, did indicate that there was a concern about duration of use of the clomiphene, by the way, also the dose of the clomiphene, you know, how many oh, tablets is a woman taking as well. Uh, same for the gonadotropins. However, in the studies that uh, Dr. Brinton did, and I was a collaborator there with her, uh, we did not see an increased risk in uh, regardless of the number of uh, cycles that a woman uh, took. Nevertheless, uh, we we did find that in women who did not become pregnant, we did see some associations with some of the cancers, uh, and so one current thinking about how to use these drugs is that a woman should really not be taking uh, clomiphene or gonadotropins for more than four to six cycles overall. So the concern is that if you're going to be taking them for longer period of times, that's going to increase estrogen levels long term, and that may in the long run affect, for instance, the breast tissue, because we know the breast tissue is very sensitive to estrogen. So that is one concern about prolonged use of these drugs. So in my practice, I like to tell patients, look, let's try clomiphene for about three to six months. Again, it depends on the woman's age. If a, if a woman is very young and she wants to go up to six months of clomiphene, I think it's a reasonable thing. But beyond that, I like to tell my patients, I think it's time to be thinking of other options because I don't like to just park you on clomiphene uh, because we really don't know the long-term side effects of taking medication for that long. So that's the current uh, opinion you know, uh, amongst reproductive endocrinologists about the use of the clomiphene. So I would say most women who've been on clomiphene for up to six months reasonable beyond that, I think they should be starting to consider other options. Mm-hmm. All right. And Dr. Britton, are there are there other cancers that uh, a woman might have, be at an increased risk for who has undergone fertility treatment? I'm, I'm thinking in terms of, of obviously the ones we've talked about because the reproductive tract, but are there, are there other cancers that, that I haven't thought about? 
Right. Um, we have been investigating some other cancers that seem to be influenced by hormonal factors such as thyroid cancer and melanoma and even brain cancers. The problem is that those studies have not those cancers have not been very intensively studied. There are some hints that there might be some associations, but I think it's really too early to tell whether there are any definitive uh, relationships there. So we need further studies on those cancers. And the other point that I'd like to make is that in terms of breast, ovarian, and endometrial cancers, there's still a need for further studies, particularly among the women who are most heavily exposed. Um, so those studies are ongoing and hopefully we'll have as reassuring results as we have for the earlier studies that focused on women who were less heavily exposed and had been followed for shorter periods of time. And you know, the, it makes such good sense what you're saying about that it's important to follow women for a long period of time because the incident of cancer um, is going to take longer to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes perfectly good sense. Where is is it true that most of the – it seems like often when I am reading the research that a lot of the research is done outside of the United States. And if that is that the case, and if so, why? Why is the research being done in other populations? Now, Dr. Britton, I'm directing that to you. Yes, it's very difficult to do follow-up studies in this country um, because we have no centralized way of tracing individuals. And so the reason we turn to places like Scandinavian countries or Israel are that those individuals have a central identification number that is used for a number of different purposes. And those countries also have cancer registries, so we can link that personal identification number with a cancer uh, cancer registry uh, and get long-term follow-up quite readily. So it's quite frustrating to try to do those types of studies in this country because we have to use all sorts of convoluted methods to try to locate the individuals oftentimes 20 or 30 years after they've received their fertility drugs. And Bert and I did that in um, the study that we conducted here in the U.S., but it took a lot of effort to try to locate the women. Yeah, I've heard other researchers say the same thing about it's so hard to do you know, really strong research here in the U.S. because of the lack of a national registry. And is mm-hmm. that also partly because some of the countries that you were mentioning have a centralized insurance and where the government is covering uh, their the at least part or at least the beginning types of fertility treatments so that the women are be, are in a system that is tracking it? That's true. And uh, also the insurance uh, covers multiple exposures. For instance, in Israel, the insurance covers up to two IVF cycles completely free of charge, and then the women can get uh, additional cycles for a very reduced rate. And they also capture all of that information in electronic medical records. Uh, So it's very easy to do that type of research in countries like Israel and the Scandinavian countries. Well, I think that if, if the, their insurance is covering two free cycles, that may explain why Israel is the IVF capital of the mm-hmm. world. I had not heard that before, and, I'm, uh, and I was sitting, I was thinking uh, of various reasons why that might be. But that now I think I understand. Mm-hmm. You are listening to Creating a Family today. We are talking about fertility treatment and breast, ovarian, and endometrial cancers. 
clout now ranks Creating a Family as one of the top worldwide influencers in the area of infertility as well as adoption. There are three ways to connect. Or we, let me back up. We primarily hang out on the social media on with uh, in Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Pinterest. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. Uh, one, you can connect with me individually at dawn.davenport1. We have a very large and very active support group, and it's a closed group, so you would have to request to join. And you can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash creating a family, all one word. Uh, or you can like our Facebook page, which also goes by the name Creating a Family. The uh, the easiest way is to just type in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box. You can like the page and join the group right from there. On Twitter and Pinterest, we hang out there as Creating a Family. So you can just type in the words Creating a Family, and we will pop right up over there. So please join us. They, the social media would be Our social media involvement would be even better if you joined us, and we would like to have that. All right, now I want to talk about getting pregnant after treatment for any of these cancers, and obviously we're going to have to divide it by type of cancer because it would clearly uh, your, uh, the methods you would be using to get pregnant is going to differ by the type of treatment and the type of cancer. So, uh, and I realize that this, Dr. Scotia, is more your uh, bailiwick, your area of expertise, so I'm going to be directing my questions in this section to you. So we're, we're going to be talking about women who have been treated for breast, ovarian, or endometrial cancer, and now she wants to get pregnant. So let's talk about, just generally, how breast cancer treatment might affect fertility, um, be it chemotherapy, radiation, surgery. How would that type of treatment, standard treatments, uh, affect a woman's fertility? So definitely there is a significant uh, impact there, uh, emotional, by the way, uh, which is huge, uh, but also physically in terms of uh, what we call ovarian reserve or overall the ability of the ovaries, the efficiency of the ovaries in releasing eggs. Some of the drugs that are used for uh, chemotherapy or some of the radiation can impact the ability of the ovaries to continue producing eggs. So there is uh, essentially a slowdown in egg production <clears throat> or a decrease, I should call it, uh, and this is very important. The other thing, and backtracking a little bit, before a woman undergoes treatment for cancer, I think it's important to also have an uh, honest conversation with the uh, specialist, the oncology specialist, about fertility preservation because some, something that we can do now, and this is not experimental anymore, we can actually go ahead and freeze embryos uh, or freeze eggs, and this, these are standard treatments that we can perform prior to um, the uh, chemotherapy or radiotherapy or surgery. So it will delay treatment by maybe a week or two, but it doesn't have to be an inordinate amount of time. So it's something very reasonable that patients need to discuss with their medical oncologist because so sometimes the conversation doesn't even occur until after the treatment, and mm -hmm. by then there, there may be you know, a little bit of a compromise in ovarian function, and that's an important consideration. So I just well, wanted to premise yeah. with that. 
Uh, let me stop you there. We were, I was actually going to talk to you about that, about what a woman should do before treatment. So since you've brought it up, we'll come back. We're going to circle back around and talk about how the treatment affects fertility. But since you've brought this up, let me stop here. And you said that it might only postpone treatment, uh, cancer treatment, for a week or so. But if a woman is wanting to, uh, her options um, are to freeze eggs alone or to freeze embryos. And um, if a woman is wanting to stimulate her ovaries so that she has more eggs to choose from, won't that take at least a month, uh, at the very least? Uh, so wouldn't it be a longer? I mean, if, if she's only going to wait a week, are the options, I guess she's taking just part of her ovaries at that point. So how does that work? I'm sorry, I'll just stop talking and ask. So we how used to say, well, we have to wait for your period and before we can get you, you know, uh, to take fertility medication, but uh, there, there's been some very uh, good work done out of uh, San Francisco where they've shown that actually you can start the stimulation at any time in the menstrual cycles because we used to think that we could only start the medication, the fertility medication, to um, in order to be able to get eggs only right after the period. Well, now we can start it at any time, so we can start it after the period has taken place, around the time of ovulation, or even after ovulation, before the period has even started. So with that, uh, so we call it a random start, we're able to actually get eggs uh, and uh, uh, retrieve the eggs so that then we can either fertilize them if uh, the patient has uh, a partner, or we can just go ahead and freeze the eggs. So this has cut the number of weeks that we require, you know, to delay uh, treatment for chemotherapy or radiotherapy or surgery, uh, it's cut it by about two weeks. So it's no longer a month. It's more like a couple of weeks. So that has revolutionized what we're able to offer patients in terms of fertility preservation. If a woman, if the treatment does not involve chemotherapy, is it still recommended that she uh, do an egg retrieval for either freezing her eggs or freezing embryos? Well, it depends on the cancer and what the proposed treatment is. So if, uh, for instance, the patient is going to have the uterus removed, uh, you know, in that case, sometimes, you know, when they go in, they may find that there's a problem with the ovaries, and so they may have to remove an ovary, and and that's a concern because that's going to decrease overall um, ovarian reserve. So that would be a situation where I would consider um, go ahead and freezing eggs. Or if they're going to do surgery to remove the ovaries, well, uh, I think that would be another situation where going ahead and removing, uh, taking some eggs would be a reasonable thing. Again, all of this needs to be undertaken as a team effort, discussing this with the oncologist because they're the best suited to determine whether a delay is reasonable or whether fertility treatment is reasonable. Even for two weeks, this is something that you know has to be put in, in some perspective. Now, some patients are not able to wait, and one option, and this is research, meaning experimental, is to go ahead and remove the ovary, but instead of just sending the entire tissue to pathology, we can now send a part of the tissue to pathology. The remainder of the tissue, we now have the ability to freeze, 
And as part of the Onco Fertility Consortium, we have the ability to actually generate eggs from this tissue that can eventually be used for, uh, you know, fertilizing the eggs and eventually for embryo transfer. It is experimental. Very few babies have been born in the world from that technology, but the studies are ongoing and they're funded by the NIH at this point through the Onco Fertility Consortium. Is there a... Is there any problem using eggs that come from a cancerous ovary uh, later for IVF or, or even at the time for IVF? Is there, if they're coming from a cancerous ovary, is there any problem with choosing to use those eggs? It depends on what the cancer type in the ovary is. For instance, some patients have what we call metastasis to the ovary, meaning that the cancer actually has move from the initial organ into the ovary. So there we would expect to find cancer cells, you know, within the ovarian tissue, and that's a a problem. On the other hand, if the uh, cancer originates in one particular part of the ovary and it's limited to that ovary, then we can go to the other side and actually get the eggs. They should be okay. So it just depends on what the, you know, the reason for the ovarian cancer in that particular patient is. And, and last, before we get off of the what women should think about before treatment, um, we have a question from Shana, and she wants to know, are there organizations that will pay for egg freezing for women diagnosed with breast cancer or really any type of cancer? Um, and I would add, uh, not just egg freezing, but you know, for women who have a partner, they may be choosing to do embryo freezing. So, um, are there? What are the uh, options for uh, paying for this? So there are organizations such as uh, Livestrong, who will um, essentially engage uh, practices and actually uh, reduce any payment by the patient to a fraction of the original cost. Uh, so uh, Livestrong is a, uh, essentially a uh, patient support group that uh, helps patients finance essentially this type of uh, treatment. It's not free, however, but they will uh, essentially contract with the various fertility practices to reduce the payment that the patient will have to make, uh, for instance, for egg freezing. And I should also add, I believe some insurance covers it. Uh, so, Shana, that would be something that you would want to check uh, with your insurance if you're asking for yourself. Because Yeah, especially uh, in states where they cover infertility. There's about 15 states where fertility treatment is covered. Uh, those insurance companies may go ahead and cover um, uh, fertility preservation. Gotcha. Okay. So let's circle back to what we were talking about, um, how treatment impacts fertility. All right, we had talked about, we had discussed, we were talking about uh, breast cancer, and the chemotherapy and the radiation uh, can both impact fertility because it reduces um, egg reserves. And that would also probably, is it logical then to assume that the age, uh, the uh, the impact is also associated uh, with the age of the woman, i.e., a woman in her 20s 
is going to be uh, stands a greater chance of maintaining her fertility after treatment than, depending, of course, on the type of treatment, um, than a woman in her 30s because she has, starts with a greater ovarian reserve. Does that does that follow? Yes, definitely. There is an age-related um, risk of um, uh, egg loss with uh, the the cancer treatment. That's definite. The cutoff age that appears from recent studies in terms of the overall chances for success in terms of fertility preservation appears to be around the age of 37. At that point, this again is a calculation based on uh, studies of various uh, ovaries in women at various ages. At that point, a woman has around 25,000 eggs per ovary. Uh, When a woman starts puberty, the number of uh, eggs per ovary is around uh, between 600 and 900,000. So uh, by 37, it's down to about 25,000. So that's where we, as a clinician, I start thinking, okay, if if the patient is younger than 37, her chances are really good. After 37, the chances are okay, but they're not as good. That's uh, that's something for patients to definitely uh, keep in mind and, and for clinicians, you know, to point out. Because obviously for a patient, I think realistic expectations are important. Yeah, absolutely. Especially they're already at this point, uh, the woman and her partner, if she has one, are dealing with so many things. Yeah, realistic expectations are vital. All right, now let's talk about some of the other cancers. Ovarian cancer treatment, I think I know that that usually requires the removal of at least one ovary. Um, So uh, it seems obvious, but maybe about how that might impact fertility. But let me uh, ask, uh, is it possible to, if you have ovarian cancer, to spare an ovary, or uh, is it almost always that both ovaries are removed? So it depends on what we call the stage of the cancer, meaning the extent of the cancer within the ovary and outside the ovary. So the ideal situation is where the cancer is picked up very early. We call it a stage 1A. In that case, we may be able to delay removal of the other ovary uh, so that we can go ahead and, um, for instance, retrieve eggs in that patient uh, freeze those eggs before you know so that then she can undergo the final uh, full treatment for her ovarian cancer, including chemotherapy or radiation if necessary. So the early uh, type of cancers or uh, the type of tumor that Dr. Brinton brought up earlier called borderline ovarian cancer. Those, uh, if, especially if it's limited to one ovary, we may be able to remove that ovary preserve the other side, go ahead through fertility preservation, and then when the patient is done preserving uh, either eggs or tissue, then the remaining uh, ovary can be removed. So those are situations where uh, an opportunity exists even for ovarian cancer. Unfortunately, when most ovarian cancers are picked up when they're much more advanced, what we call stage three and stage four. Those are more problematic because in that case, really we're talking about needing 
to intervene right away and really the ability for us to get uh, eggs in that situation is going to be very difficult. So for that particular patient, one option would be what I mentioned earlier about ovarian tissue preservation. So the tissue is going to go to pathology. The pathologist is going to take all the ovarian tissue needed to make their diagnosis. But if there's any ovarian tissue that appears to be normal, then that tissue could then be frozen for later possible use as part of a research uh, protocol to grow eggs and uh, fertilize them and then uh, maybe achieving uh, embryos for transfer. But again, this is experimental. And, and the last cancer that we uh, need to talk about is endometrial cancer. Doesn't that usually result in a, in a hysterectomy? And if that's the case, then we're, you know, the woman then uh, is considered her options for a, uh, a biological child would be a surrogate primarily, but she could use her own eggs. Um, so any, anything, does it, does it always result in a hysterectomy? Is that the standard treatment? So the standard treatment, you're correct, is a hysterectomy. However, if the cancer or the transformation of the tissue is very early, meaning patient has what we call hyperplasia or a very uh, early endometrial cancer, that patient, after prior treatment with a progesterone-type medication for about three to six months, after, again, discussion with the specialist, the oncology specialist, then that patient, uh, we will sometimes consider going ahead and getting, um, you know, undergoing stimulation, getting the eggs. And if cleared by oncology, we could even consider transferring the embryo. But there is a risk that the cancer is more advanced than what the pathology indicates at the time of the diagnosis. So yeah. that's the tricky part. So that's a very uh, tricky situation, and that, again, has to be discussed. Uh, there has to be an honest discussion between the patient, the oncology specialist, and the fertility specialist. And are all these cancers we've mentioned, the reproductive tract, cancers, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, uh, endometrium cancer, um, are all of them influenced by hormones such that the uh, pregnancy hormones could be harmful for the woman uh, in, 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 in any of these cases? Are, I, well, we know that certain, certain breast cancers are more influenced by estrogen than others, but what about the other cancers? Are they all influenced by hormones? Unfortunately, the entire reproductive tissue has receptors for these hormones, so the the answer is yes, they're all affected. But uh, for most patients, they actually can do quite well. For instance, we were talking about uh, endometrial cancer. Uh, the pregnancy produces a lot of progesterone. Progesterone is anti-estrogenic, meaning that it kind of can reverse some of the changes in the lining that sometimes can be abnormal. Those changes can disappear with pregnancy, so that actually can be a good thing. Uh, in breast cancer, when patients get pregnant, it doesn't necessarily have to worsen the prognosis. Some patients do have recurrence during pregnancy, 
but for the majority of patients, they do okay. Again, it depends on the extent of the cancer, the receptor status of the cancer, and so on. But overall, for patients who are pregnant with breast cancer in general, they tend to do well, actually. And are there are there drugs that a woman that that, uh, that can be given to a woman during treatment that uh, in some way would help protect the ovaries from the impact of of treatment? Um, and, and I guess yeah, so that would be probably chemotherapy treatment. So uh, is there something that can be done to lessen the ovary or the egg reserve uh, destroying function of the chemotherapy? So there is some recent interesting data on breast cancer. There have been at least two studies now looking at the use of uh, what we call GnRH agonists. So the drug uh, in the U.S. is called as Luprolide or Lupron, and essentially, but there are other drugs in Europe, for instance, Goserelin. Um, anyway, these drugs shut down the ovaries, and uh, by doing so, they appear to decrease dramatically the uh, estrogen production within the ovaries. These seem to be protective against uh, for breast cancer long-term and also for resumption of ovarian function in these women after the treatment is over. So the patient starts the medication right before the chemotherapy or right at the time of chemotherapy, continues during the entire chemotherapy treatment, which is usually up to about six months, then she stops the medication. The resumption of periods in these women is much higher than the women who are treated, for instance, in those studies with placebo, and also the recurrence of the breast cancer seems to be lower in the women who took these types of drugs. So it's only two studies, but the data is uh, certainly very intriguing. And so if I had a patient who cannot uh, undergo fertility preservation for whatever reason, yet she's faced with starting chemotherapy, let's say, next week, that's one of the considerations that I will discuss with her about using one of these medicines uh, called GnRH agonist or Luprolide uh, to suppress the ovaries during the chemotherapy in an attempt to both um, uh, suppress the ovaries to preserve them, preserve ovarian function, and in the case of breast cancer, uh, perhaps uh, minimize long-term recurrence of the breast cancer. Again, it's preliminary data, but uh, from two randomized trials, this is very interesting information for patients oh, to be aware of. Yeah, yes. that now, is absolutely fascinating. There is another drug that sometimes, that not sometimes, but commonly now we use, which is, and you mentioned earlier, corletrazole. Letrozole lowers estrogen levels. So the, when you take letrozole, it lowers circulating estrogen levels. So one of the things that we're doing now in patients who are undergoing ovulation induction, let's say for breast cancer prior to chemotherapy or radiation or surgery, is to go ahead and treat them with the letrozole while taking the fertility medications, the injectable medicines you mentioned earlier. This will lower circulating estrogen levels, and uh, there, there's been a study uh, following those patients up to five years later with no increased chance of recurrence of the breast cancer. Again, very short follow-up interval, 
but promising uh, medication to minimize the risk during uh, ovulation induction for uh, retrieval of eggs um, prior to um, chemotherapy uh, for cancer of the breast. I tell you, this is an exciting time. I mean, that is amazing. And, and not only does it help with the preserving of fertility, but also reduces their chance for a reoccurrence, which is, you know, it's kind of like a twofer there, right? That's wonderful. Yes, very interesting information, yes. Let me take a moment to thank a few more of our gold sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show and provide all the resources that we provide at creatingafamily.org um, to help you on your infertility journey. We have Reproductive Medicine Associates in New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility. They have 10 offices and 21 physicians throughout New Jersey and offer IVF delivery rates well above the national average. We also have Manhattan Cryobank. They are dedicated to helping clients have healthy babies by analyzing a client's DNA in combination with the DNA of prospective sperm donors to provide the client with a personalized catalog of safer donor matches. All right, we've uh, what, we've got a question from one of our audience, basically about how long you should wait after cancer treatment before trying to conceive. She's asked that I not use her name. She says, I have been in treatment for breast cancer, radiation, chemo, and surgery, and have been cancer-free for two years. I am 36. I want to hurry up and have a child, but how long is it recommended that I wait? Uh, and, and I will add that we can't give specific medical advice as to her condition, but we can talk of generalities and uh, and uh, kind of give general uh, what's generally considered best practice. But truly, this is a question that can only be answered by in combination probably with your uh, gynecologist as well as your obstetrician, perhaps your reproductive endocrinologist, and, of course, your oncologist. Okay, well, Dr. Britton, let me go ahead and, and, and generally speaking, how long... Um, should someone wait after treatment? In her case, she's speaking of breast cancer, um, and she had radiation, chemo, and surgery. I think I'll need to defer that question to Dr. Scotia. Okay, Dr. Scotia. Happy to address it again. I, I can't be specific, but in general, um, it depends on the uh, status of the receptors in the breast uh, cancer that the that the patient had and also a frank discussion with the oncologist. Uh, I know that uh, in general they like to wait around five years, but it's already been two years. If the extent of the tumor was uh, relatively small uh, and the receptor status was, uh, you know, um, conducive to going ahead and uh, undertaking a fertility treatment, then it would be a reasonable thing, but uh, I would say two years is is a reasonable amount of time to wait. So I would definitely talk to the medical oncologist to see what their recommendations are. And um, the other thing is um, another reason to wait a little bit of time, at least six months to a year, is that during the treatment for the cancer, one of the markers that we use to check the ovarian tissue function called anti-malarian hormone level actually uh, decreases because of the impact of the chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery on the ovarian tissue. So given a, a tincture of time, the levels will actually gradually recover, 
and you know be more normal so now it's been a couple of years so i would uh you know definitely uh, also plan to check with your uh, gynecologist or fertility specialist in anti malarian hormone level uh, the acronym is amh so that would be helpful. She also asked a follow-up question, and that is, have there been studies to know if the radiation or drugs will de- increase my risk of infertility, which we've already talked about, and the answer is yes, or miscarriage, uh, or may somehow affect my baby's health? So uh, the what about, now um, we have talked about the risk for infertility because it affects the uh, egg reserves. But what about our women who have been treated for cancer? Uh, more likely to have a miscarriage? Let's ask. Her, let me just ask that question, uh, Dr. Scotia, first, and then we'll talk about uh, the research on affecting the infant's or child's health. So, to address the patient's concern, the impact of the chemotherapy on the lining of the uterus, which is where you know what we would be most concerned about, the effect seems to be minimal. So that's reassuring. Radiation therapy to the pelvis, on the other hand, can impact the lining of the uterus, so that potentially could have a detrimental effect on the ability of the patient to carry uh, the pregnancy. And so um, that's something that uh, I would recommend that she discuss with her uh, medical oncologist as well as gynecologist because if the radiation was directed towards the uterus, uh, or the pelvis, it's called usually, then that would be that would concern me about the impact on the lining and how the lining is going to be able to grow and be nutritious for for a potential uh, pregnancy. But if the radiation is more local to the breast tissue, for instance, then I wouldn't be I would not be concerned about any impact to the to the lining of the uterus. It's more related to just getting the eggs. Uh, fertilizing them, and then transferring the embryos. Okay, or she might even be able to conceive without fertility treatment. Um, that's Potentially, also yes. Yeah. And then her, her last question was, has there been any research on the impact of the infant or child's health if the mother has had chemotherapy or radiation uh, prior to conception? So there have been studies. There is actually an ongoing uh, children's, uh, of mothers who actually had cancer, and uh, the results are actually very reassuring at this point, although some uh, some of these children have been found to have certain tumors later on in life, but they're rare. Uh, so overall, my uh, impression would be that the data is very reassuring. Uh, maybe Louise has more specific information on that. I think I'd agree with your assessment that uh, the, the data are sparse, and we really don't have definitive conclusions, but right now uh, the results are fairly reassuring. And it seems to me that one of the problems is what, uh, Dr. Britton, what you mentioned earlier, is that to really cancers often come later in life, and we would have to really study these children for a long period of time to have any really definitive. But I suppose it, it, the short-term studies, uh, from what you're saying, are, are optimistic at this point. Is that a good assessment? I think that's a good assessment. Okay. All right. And, uh, and ultimately, of course, all women who have had 
uh, any of these uh, reproductive tract or breast cancer uh, cancers is worried about they they don't as much as they might want a child they they don't want to risk a reoccurrence both for themselves as well as because they want to be around to parent this child so uh Dr. Scotia has there been research that indicates that getting pregnant after let's just let's divide up the cancers after breast cancer uh is uh increases a woman's chance for a reoccurrence of her cancer Overall, the data actually is reassuring that these patients uh, do quite well. Um, Unfortunately, with breast cancer, some of the recurrences don't happen until 20 years later. So it's very difficult to dissect out the impact of pregnancy versus the impact of the original tumor on the recurrence. But overall, the data... Uh, it's actually reassuring that a woman can go ahead and get pregnant and uh, the risk of reoccurrence, at least immediate reoccurrence, is relatively low. And what about with ovarian cancer? At this point, she would have had preserved her ovaries or preserved eggs or embryos. Um, what about the reoccurrence for ovarian cancer? So with ovarian cancer, actually, it's more definitive, uh, indicating that if the uh, tumor has not recurred, especially within the first five years, then the risk of overall risk of reoccurrence is dramatically decreased and the patient should be okay. Unfortunately, when they um, remove the ovaries for ovarian cancer, they tend to remove the uterus, so that's clearly a problem for, for most patients in terms yeah, of I'm trying good. to have a baby afterwards. Yeah, I was sitting here thinking, I think in real-life situations, um, they probably have had a hysterectomy uh, as well so that, that they would be uh, seeking a surrogate if that's if they're going to be trying to have uh, use their preserved eggs. Okay, yes. good. Well, we have come to the end of our time. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Britton and Dr. Scotia, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. Uh, for our audience, if you want to help us grow, and we hope you do, we would really be very appreciative if you would give us a rating of this podcast on iTunes. We are rated number one on iTunes, and we'd love to keep that to keep that place. So if you could pop over to iTunes and give us a quick rating, that would be great. Just use whatever app it is you're currently listening to, or if you're listening on our website, you can go to that page and rate us there, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. Uh, to get more information on Dr. Bert Scotia, you can go to the website he's affiliated with, and that is uicivf.org, uicivf.org. To get more information on the research uh, of Dr. Britton, you can, uh, the easiest way is to Google her name and re- the word, re- so Dr. Louise Britton, uh, the word research and the word uh, uh, cancer risk fertility treatment. Um, Unfortunately, most of her research is just available in abstract form, but it is fascinating, and you may be able, there might be some that has been reprinted, and it will just pop up on that page, and that's probably your, your safest way of getting there. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I will see you next week. And now, an ad from Dad. All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. 
That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.